Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of 2 John. 2 John. You can go to Revelation at the very back of your Bibles and um, turn back to Jude. And then you'll get to 3 John and then to 2 John. We do have paperback Bibles in the chairs up in front of you. If you did bring a Bible with you, so you can grab one of those. Sorry, I forgot to look for the page number on the paperback Bibles, but pretty easy book to find. 2 John. I'm sick of tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. Some of you might recognize that from 1971 song by John Lennon called Give Me Some Truth. And this song seems to be as relevant today as it was in 1971. Henry David Thoreau, even uh, many decades before John Lennon wrote this, he said, more than love, more than money, more than fame, what I want is truth. That's very relevant to us today because it seems like our confidence in being able to find truth is at an all-time low. There's more confusion about the truth now than maybe there has been in a very long time. We all know about fake news. We're told to warn against fake news. What is fake news? It's people purporting to give you the truth. What they're actually doing, however, is telling you a lie. And so to check fake news, we have fact checkers. That's why fact checkers exist, because there's this assumption, this expectation that people aren't going to tell the truth. So we look to our fact checkers to tell us what is right and wrong. And yet, we also know there's something called spin. That is that people can take the truth, spin it, or manipulate it to put forth a certain message that might not be the full truth. And sometimes we wonder if fact checkers are spinning fake news to give us an untruth. We're also told that our history books, perhaps, have not been entirely forthright. With us over the years, we're told now that some of the things we've been told were not entirely true. We're also told that there are some truths that were not included in our history books. Uh, A very ironic example of this is the story of George Washington and the cherry tree. Many of us have been told that story. George Washington, our first president, cut down the cherry tree, wasn't supposed to do that, said, I cannot tell a lie, and owned up to it and told the truth. Problem is, scholars tell us that's not the truth that actually that never happened, that was a myth handed down over the centuries or over the decades about George Washington. A story about telling the truth is perhaps not truth. How do we find the truth? How do we know what the truth is? Is it even possible to know the truth? Here's the thing about the scriptures. The Bible presents truth to us as something that is very real, that is very accessible, that is actually very understandable, and that is absolutely essential to our faith as Christians. In fact, the truth is at the very heart of our faith. Because who do we worship but Jesus Christ, who said to us, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
Truth is absolutely essential to us as Christians, and that's what this little book called Second John is about. That's the main theme running through this tiny letter, and that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, Route 66 is our sermon series. We are working our way through the Bible, started in Genesis and heading toward Revelation, and uh, we've reached this tiny book called Second John. Second John written by the Apostle John. So this is the same John we read about in the Gospels, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of the Gospel of John, and also the author of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So don't be confused about that. These are different books, the Gospel of John and then these epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all written by the same John, we believe, the same John who also wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, John wrote this in uh, the very late uh, portion of the first century, it's close to 85-95 AD, so John is a very old man at the time, but he's writing these epistles, and even in these just 13 verses, we see a number of themes, unity, love, obedience, truth, and false teaching. So, um, this is one of the shortest books in the New Testament, actually I haven't really compared, I guess 3rd John is 15 verses, 2nd John is 13 verses, so both of those are shorter than Philemon, so here we have the two shortest epistles in the New Testament, which means we can read the entire thing here, just 13 verses in 2nd John. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to stand, <clears throat> and I'll read these 13 verses to us now. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For... Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. God in heaven, Holy Spirit, come open our minds and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, hopefully you got uh, the clear in impression there. The word truth mentioned uh, one, two, three, four, five, six or so times there, just in the first few verses. So what does this uh, tiny little book tell us about truth? First thing is this, that as Christians, as God's people, we are united in the truth. 
there's a union that we have together in the church, but that union is based on the truth. And so the letter opens with kind of this odd way of saying things. Verse 1, the elder, that's referring to John himself, to the elect lady and her children. So who is this elect lady? Well, there's a lot of debate about this. Commentators have difference of opinion about whether this is an individual that John is writing to or whether this is actually a, kind of a, a, a code word maybe or a personification of the church. And I think that's probably a better explanation that by elect lady, what John means is the church. One of the reasons for that is throughout the letter you'll find the presence of the second person plural pronoun. By that I just mean if you've forgotten your English uh, rules of grammar, if you look in verse 8, watch yourselves, it says. That's a second person plural, yourselves. It would seem odd that John would be speaking in that term if he's talking to an individual. And we also know that, uh, for instance, in the book of Revelation, John refers to the church as the bride of Christ. So thinking of the church uh, according to the female gender wouldn't make it unusual for him to refer to the church as the elect lady here. So uh, differences of opinion on that, but I think that's what John has in mind here. And so when he talks about the elect lady and her children, I think the children then is not referring to the lady's descendants or children, or not talking about kids here, but talking about children of the church, that is participants, members in the church. That would be very consistent with what we see throughout the New Testament, a letter being written to a congregation of Christian believers. So, what John then goes on to say here in these early verses here, verse 1, to the elect lady, to the church, whom I love, he says, I love the church, John says, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but notice it's not this kind of vague, ambiguous love, it's a love that is in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us, in the community of believers, in the church. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is where the truth abides and lives and resides, is preserved and taught and put forth. It's in the, ch in the church. But it's not just abiding with us temporarily. He goes on to say it's going to be with us forever. The body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Jesus, are united. We are held together by kind of adhesive, kind of a glue, kind of like cement between the bricks that is the truth of the gospel. That's the foundation of our unity. You know, we have a congregation of people here. What primarily unites us, friends, is not, is not our hobbies. It's not that we share certain sports teams that we root for. It's not our that our personalities are the same, they're, they're certainly not. It's not that we share the same politics, it's not that we have the same skin color, it's not that we're from the same nations, it's not that we have the same education level, it's not that we think the same about our president, it's not even that we're all Americans, even though that's what we celebrated yesterday. That is not the primary thing that unites us as a congregation of believers. What unites us? It's that we love the truth, and the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what ties us together, our love for Jesus. Back in 1 John 4, John kind of defined the basics of the gospel for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the truth that John has in mind. Of course, we can't know the truth about everything. (laughs) But we can know the truth about some things. And in fact, we can know the truth about the most important thing, which is the gospel. And that's what ties us together as Christians. A very common assumption that you'll find in the culture, in the church in particular, I think, a common assumption is that the more we get serious about the truth, the less unity there's going to be. So that's what a lot of people think. More truth equals less unity. Why? Because the more we start talking about things like what actually happened on the cross, what did Jesus actually do, we start talking about how is it that a person can be saved? How does that work? When we start talking about the authority of the scriptures and the nature of God's word, when we start talking about heaven and hell, is there a hell? Do people go there? Really? When we start talking about how to be saved, whether Jesus is the only way, all these things kind of enter in. We start talking about these things. What happens? What people will say is everybody's going to disagree. Nobody's going to want to talk about those truth claims. And what's going to end up happening is there's going to be disunity in the church. So let's not talk about those things. Let's downplay them. Unity is found in not talking about truth much. That's the assumption. That's what some people will say. But it does not seem to be what John is saying. Unity in the truth. I love the church in the truth. The truth is what abides in us. The truth is what holds us together. The truth is what is going to last forever. Here's uh, uh, what I would say the scriptures say is more truth actually ends up leading to more unity. The more we have to rally around, the more unified we are. I mean, just think of it. But imagine if you wanted to join a, a club and you said, well, what do you have to believe to join this club? And they said, nothing. Um, well, who can be a member? Anybody? Well, what are we going to do? Whatever. You want to be part of that club? <laughs> what kind of unity exists in a club like that? What, t- what, what holds those people together? Nothing. No common cause, no common belief, no common goals, no unity. So what John is saying here is that there is a truth, and that's what binds us together. As Presbyterians here, by the way, I might comment that we are what is called a confessional church, which means that we have a confession of faith. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that's a document that summarizes what we believe to be the truth that the Scriptures teach. You know, people from all sorts of different traditions and places will say they believe the Bible. Yeah, I believe the Bible. But the question is, what do you believe the Bible teaches? That's an important question. And that's what a confession answers. That's what the Westminster Confession sets forth for us, what we believe the truth of the Bible teaches. There's a lot of stuff in that confession. It's a beautiful document. It's not a perfect document, but it's a beautiful document, and it's around that document that we build our unity to the extent that that document teaches what the Scriptures teach about the Gospel. So, let's not miss, though, John's balance, because here is a problem that I I will fully admit to you. Here's a problem that often happens in the church. Those who love truth sometimes forget to love. Sometimes the commitment to truth leads to a dismissal, a neglect of love. And look what John says here in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace. This is what he's extending to the church. This is what he wants to see prevail in the church. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, and here we have the mention of truth again, but love also. In truth and love. 
in truth and love. Both are important. One of the things I love so much about the scriptures is the balance that we see taught in the scriptures. Truth and love. Here's the, the, the problem. Love tends to go soft when there's no truth because we don't have anything to unite us together in our love for one another, but truth will go hard with no love. Truth gets hard with no love, and when we get too committed to the truth at the expense of love, we can end up being harsh and rude and disrespectful and offensive. But what John says here is, you know, don't forget the truth. This is what the common assumption is. Yeah, see, that's going to happen. We're going to argue, and we're going to get in dispute, so let's not talk about truth. No. John says the truth is important. You just got to balance it with love. Don't neglect the truth, but don't neglect love either. So as Brian was praying just a little while ago, we just happened to be living in this time. There's so much dissension, so much disagreement on just about every topic imaginable. It just seems like even within the church, there are so many disputes. Friends, I'm not suggesting that you be any less passionate about the truth. Be passionate when you talk about politics or racism or the coronavirus or Donald Trump or theology, whatever it is you're talking about, I mean, yeah, go for the truth. But friends, when you talk about those things to people, do they know you love them? That's the question. They might see you as someone who's really passionate about the truth, but you know what? It's largely irrelevant if they don't know you love them. Can you present truth and love? That's the ideal John holds up for us here at the end of verse 3. So, as Christians, we're united in the truth. We're held together by the gospel. The second thing to consider about the truth is that Christians are commanded to walk in the truth. To walk in the truth. Look at verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. What is it to walk in the truth? Well, we'll find out more, but it's just kind of obeying the truth, being faithful to the scriptures and to Jesus. What John says here is that, notice, very careful here, verse 4, I find some of your children walking in the truth. What's the implication there? That some are not walking in the truth. So what Paul, John seems to be acknowledging here is in this church to which he's writing, there's perhaps a majority of people who are giving themselves to Jesus, submitting to Jesus, following Jesus, loving Jesus, but some actually aren't. He's rejoicing that some are. The reality is some don't. And that's the case probably in any congregation. There's some who are walking, uh, some who are uh, going through the motions, some have made the profession, some are in church every Sunday, but not walking in the truth. And so John acknowledges this and then offers up a reminder then. Verse 5, I now ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment. So he's not bringing anything new here. It's a, it's a reminder. This isn't anything new. It's the one we've heard from the very beginning. And what is it? That we love one another. That's what it is to walk in the truth. John wants his people to walk in the truth, and the primary way of walking in the truth is that love would be expressed between brothers and sisters in Christ. When he refers to this new, not a new commandment, but what we've heard from the beginning, I think he's referring to the words of Jesus, which we find in the gospel. So here's some John 15. Same John would have written this, but these are the words of Jesus. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. It says in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So 
Christians are commanded, walk in the truth. What is it to walk in the truth? It is to love one another. Well, that brings up another question. What is it to love? What does that look like? Because as you think about our culture's expression, definition, conception of love, you get all kinds of crazy ideas. I mean, for some people in our culture, love means tolerance, right? Love means not being judgmental. Love means you don't say anything is wrong. Love means you just put your stamp of approval on whatever anybody wants to do, whatever they want to believe, and however they want to live. The best way to love them is just let them be true to themselves. That's the culture's idea of love. And there's another common kind of conception about love. You find this even in church a lot, that love is just a feeling. It's just a passion. It's just an emotion. You feel love, and then when the feeling goes away, you don't love anymore. It's a very internal, emotionally-based thing, according to some. But what the Scriptures would tell us here, no, that love is something very different. It's not that it doesn't involve feelings, necessarily, but it's more a choice. It's an action. It's a behavior. It's actually more of an external thing than an internal thing. It's actually more about what you do with your hands than what's going on in your heart. That's love. You say, well, how how do you know that? Well, let's go on to verse 6. John says... This is love. Here it is. I'm going to tell you what it is. (laughs) That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Love is shaped by the truth of God's word as it is revealed in these commandments from God. Love has a definition to it. It has a shape to it that the scriptures give to us. Love is not just something that we just we, we make up. It's not something that just flows from how we happen to feel in the moment. It's given objective definition. You know, there are just so many people who say that they, they, they love Jesus and they have no interest in obeying Jesus. Or imagine a person saying, yeah, I love my wife. I love my wife dearly, but he never spends time with her. He won't do what she asks. He never seeks to please her. He refuses to give up anything for her. He's repeatedly unfaithful to her, and yet he says he loves her. What do we say to that person? You're either completely deceived or you're lying. You don't know how to love your wife if you're acting that way. How can we say that? Because love has a definition, it has a shape. It's just not how we want to impose our own meaning upon it. And these commandments in the scriptures... The truth of God's word is what gives us clarity, definition, understanding about what love is. So when John says here, this is love, um, that you uh, walk according to his commandments, we might ask, okay, what what commandments is he talking about? In Romans 13, we get a a, a nice summary here. Uh, Owe no one anything, Paul says, except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the, command, <coughs> for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. So there we have some, uh, s- some truth, some shape to how we regard sexuality. You shall not murder. Now we're getting some instruction about the sanctity of life, how we should view that. You shall not steal. There's instruction, there's truth there about how we regard private property, and how we should regard people's right to own what they have and keep it. You shall not covet. There's instruction about how we should regard people who have more than we do and what our heart response should be to that. All of these things are the way we love. Practical. Boots on the ground instruction for what love looks like. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is John's command. 
Christians are people who walk in the truth. They walk in accordance to instruction. They love one another. By the way, that's the context here. It's loving brothers and sisters in Christ. This is love that's largely taking place in the church. It's amazing how difficult it is to obey so many commands in the New Testament if you're not in the church. Because that's always the context. How you treat your brothers and sisters. And that's the case here. Now, let me be very clear. We say this every week. It always bears repeating. Nobody is saved by obeying the commands of God. It's impossible. You're not going to be saved because you're a good follower of the law. The gospel tells us Jesus has obeyed the commands for us. He has submitted to the law on our behalf. He has died on the cross to pay the penalty for our disobedience to the law. So we're not saved by our works, but friends, we're saved for works. God saved us that we might obey him, that we might shine like stars in the universe before a watching world. So you might say, well, what does that look like? I mean, practically speaking, what does it look like to love others? Well, things like this. You pursue people. You might feel like there's something not right in your relationship with somebody. You've offended them. They've offended you. You can look the other way and hope it goes away, or you can pursue them. That's, that's the way to love somebody. You instruct people. You share the scriptures with others. Sometimes you challenge them. Sometimes you rebuke them. That's an act of love. You listen to people. You're not always looking for the next thing you're going to say. You want to hear what they have to say. You consider others better than you. <laughs> you do that? I mean, in your heart, are you kind of generally thinking, I'm better than others. I know more than they do. I'm more obedient. I'm a more serious Christian. I understand things better. I'm better. <laughs> you might not say it that explicitly, but in your heart, is that what's going on? The way to love people, you consider they are better than you. You assume the best about people. You hear somebody say something, it doesn't sound quite right. You immediately go to the most negative conclusion possible and you allow your heart to rise up against that person. Maybe they meant something different. I don't know. Assume the best is a way to love. Refuse to take revenge. The scriptures are clear. Don't look for a way to get people back. That's the way the world acts. That's not the way we act. It's not the way Christians live. We don't look for revenge. We rejoice in the good things that happen to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a source of, it's not an opportunity to envy them or resent them because they got the opportunity we didn't. No, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We join with them in that. But you know what we also do? We weep with those who weep. Maybe we don't understand what they're weeping about. Maybe we don't think it's any big deal. Doesn't matter. We weep with them because that's what it is to love. We're patient people. We go with people a long time. We give them time. We give them space. We're kind. We're kind to each other. We speak to people gently. We give encouragement. We affirm people. We look for what's good in them and we build them up. We forgive people when they've wronged us. We forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We don't hold grudges. Christians don't do that. We don't hold grudges. That's what it is to love others. And that's what it is to walk in the truth. Sinclair Ferguson says this, If Christ is not ashamed to indwell them, I will not be slow to embrace them. And sums up the attitude that Christians should have toward one another as we walk in truth and love one another. Third thing we see is this. Christians are also warned about losing the truth. We're united in the truth of the gospel, 
We're commanded to walk in the truth, God's commands about how we love. But then lastly here, we're warned about losing the truth. You see this in verse 8. Verse 8. Watch yourselves, be careful, so that you may not lose what we have worked for. This is not a reference to losing salvation. It's, it's a, a reference to losing um, what has been accomplished through the labors of the gospel and preaching and teaching that, that this can be reversed or, or lost if something happens. And that is this in verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. If we allow deceivers to take over, if we tolerate deceivers, we might lose the progress we've made in the gospel. That's what John is saying here. Deceivers, what are deceivers? False teachers. Boy, here we go again, right? I mean, one thing I've just been kind of surprised as we've gone through this Route 66 is how frequently in almost every single New Testament letter there's some kind of a warning against false teachers. And here it is again. There's deceivers out there. They, they, have, they have gone out into the world. These are people who are, uh, according to John, a kind of an antichrist. That's how serious this is, this false teaching. And there are two things that John tells us here about false teachers. One, how to recognize them. How do you recognize a false teacher? Well, one is by what he does say, okay? Look at verse 9. You can recognize a false teacher by what he does say. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So he's saying that those who go on ahead, that is, those who don't want to abide in the teachings of Christ, that is, the basics of the gospel are no longer enough. There's got to be more. We live in a different time, right? We live in a postmodern age right now, not in a modern age, a postmodern age. Things are different now. You'll hear people say, oh, if church doesn't do this or that, the church is going to die because it has to adjust to this new age. We've got to have, we've got to innovate, we've got to be progressive, we have to reinvent, we have to bring something fresh. And sometimes people will go so far ahead that they leave God behind. And that's what John seems to be talking about here. We don't have to go ahead of the gospel. We don't have to adorn the gospel with something else. We don't have to add anything to it. What John says is abide in the teaching of Christ, what you've heard from the beginning. That's enough. It doesn't need to be adjusted. Of course, we can be careful how we communicate it. There are certain issues in our day that need to be addressed. I'm not denying any of that. But it seems to me what this text is actually saying is that theology ought to be inherently conservative. Not looking to change or to revise, to not run ahead. I heard a definition of conservatism. It, it goes like this. When change is not necessary, it is necessary not to change. And the gospel does not need to be changed. The gospel is enough. And so this is what John says here. You can recognize a false teacher by somebody who tries to add to the gospel, but you can also recognize a false teacher by what he does not say. Okay, look at this in verse 7. Many, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So here he's talking about the incarnation, that, that God, the creator of the universe, came into our world by taking to himself a human body, human flesh, a human nature. God the Father, second person of the Trinity, comes into this world, takes upon a human nature. His name is Jesus. 
And that Jesus then, God and man together, lives on this earth in submission to the Father and obedience to the commands and then offers up that body on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement for your sins and for mine. And then is raised up from the grave in a glorious bodily resurrection. I think all of that is entailed, actually, in this short little phrase, coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. There's a purpose for which he came in the flesh, which is to lay down his flesh for you and for me. But what John is saying here, notice this very carefully. John is not talking about a person who necessarily denies that. Now, I think he would certainly say if somebody denied that, that's a false teacher. But it's not really what he says. What? It's the person who won't confess it. It's the person who won't say it. It's the person who leaves it out. It's the person who says a lot of things that you might agree with and think, yeah, that's really great, but there's no atonement. There's no Jesus in the flesh. There's no crucifixion. There's no resurrection. There's no propitiation for sins. They don't say that. You can tell a false teacher just as much by what they say as by what they don't say. And that's what John seems to be warning against. That's how you recognize a false teacher. Wants to innovate, leave behind the basics, and there's certain things he just won't say. But there's a second thing here, and we have the resistance of false teachers, which John talks about here in verses 10 and 11. To some degree, we're called to resist false teachers. Verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is, God in the flesh, coming in the person of Jesus, if someone comes, doesn't bring that teaching, don't receive him in your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So what in the world does John mean here? Well, certainly he doesn't mean that we shouldn't have unbelievers in our home. That would just be contrary to what everything we read about hospitality in, in the scriptures. I don't think John here means to say that we shouldn't even have false teachers, or excuse me, that we shouldn't have people who believe false teaching in our home. But I think he is saying that when there is a person who is absolutely dedicated to the spreading of error and to disputing the orthodox gospel as it's been handed down over the century, that that is a person that we should not give any platform to, any support to, any way whatsoever. Because to do that is, according to John, take part in his wicked works. So we could say, actually, when he says, don't welcome them into your house, you know a lot of churches met in houses at this time. So what John could be saying is, don't let this person have a platform to speak in your church. It could be what it means. Uh, I tend to take it a little more literally and just say, particularly during this time, hospitality was more of a support for the person that you welcomed to your house. That what John is saying here is, don't give a platform, an opportunity in any way whatsoever for a false teacher to spread his or her false teaching. Why is that? You know, it's just because John's concerned about the dangers of false teaching. It, it's, it's insidious. It's wicked. And once people begin to accept false teaching, it becomes that much harder to undo the things that they have embraced and believed. It's much easier to talk to, the gospel, talk to somebody about the gospel when they don't have any preconceived opinions about what the gospel is. But once that person has been thinking and believing and grasping false teaching, it can take a long time, if ever, to undo that. So John brings this up and warns us and encourages us to resist false teachers. This is how important truth is in the scriptures, and to John. Friends, people are longing for truth. 
people want to know the truth. I'm going to conclude here by quoting another musician, a guy named Jack White. He was in a band called The White Stripes many years after Don Lennon. But Jack White, back in 2007, was quoted as saying this. I don't know really what his beliefs are, but he said, I just want to know what the truth is. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. I see God as only knowing one truth, and that's it. And I want to know what that one truth is. I just appreciate his honesty and his candidness. He's not thinking there's a multitude of different truths that are up to people's different opinions. No, he's thinking there's one truth. Heaven is divided among many truths. There's one truth he instinctively says, and I want to know what it is. Do you know what it is? Do you know the truth? Are you willing to share truth with others? Because there's a lot of people out there who think like Jack White. I don't want to know what the truth is. I wish I could sit down with, with Jack White and say, Jack, here's, here's the truth. <laughs> You're a creature of God. The creator of the universe made you. And you're accountable to him. You belong to him. He loves you. He's made you in his image. In that sense, you're, you're special. I mean, you have great dignity, Jack White, because you're made in the image of God. But you know what? Jack, you've sinned against this God. You've not worshipped him. You've not thanked him. You've lived as if he doesn't exist. You've rebelled against his ways, and he's angry about that, Jack White. But God, in his mercy, came into this world. He sent his son. He entered into the world in the person of Jesus, and he did everything right that you've done wrong. And he loved you so much that he died on the cross. He, he gave himself up for you. He he laid down his life, not just any kind of death. It was painful, humiliating death. He gave himself for you, Jack White. He died for you. And he's resurrected from the grave. Miraculously, he came out of that tomb, and he lives right now. He's alive, and he reigns, and he rules, and he demands your obedience and submission. And if you would just receive that, Jack White, if you would just believe in that truth, repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and trust in this Jesus, he will give you full pardon for every wrong thing you've ever done. His anger against you will be removed. All of your sins will be forgiven. He will remember them no more. And you will belong to him. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit that you can actually live like a good, righteous person in this world. And one day he's coming again, and when he comes again, he's going to make everything right. Everything you're upset about in this fallen world, it's all going to be corrected. And there'll be no more death and no more sickness and no more tears and we'll live forever with the Savior and Creator who has redeemed you. That's what I'd love to tell to Jack White. <laughs> That's the truth. What I've just told you is the truth. And it's the most important truth that you need to know. You can't know everything, but you can know that. That's the truth for Jack White. It's the truth for John Lennon. And it's the truth for you too. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us, that you declare to us the truth. We don't always like to hear the truth, but Lord, there's nothing better than the truth of your gospel, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.